We're often looking at harm in healthcare after something goes wrong. But when we track overrides, we have a chance to say, here's a signal that can help us move upstream and identify and mitigate um, some of the challenges and fracture lines um, that we exist. Good day, and welcome to another HIMSCast podcast. I'm Bill Sawicki, Managing Editor of Healthcare IT News, a HIMS Media publication. Today, we'll be discussing patient and workforce safety in healthcare, most especially whether health IT can advance safety and help regain ground that was lost during the pandemic. My guest is Patricia A. McGaffigan, RN. Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She is the former Chief Operating Officer and Senior Vice President of Safety Programs at the National Patient Safety Foundation. uh, McGaffigan is a certified professional in patient safety, a graduate of the AHA NPSF Patient Safety Leadership Fellowship Program, and a member of the Joint Commission National Patient Safety Committee. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Bill, and thanks for having me today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Well, we have a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. First, you contend that health IT can advance patient and workforce safety and, and help regain ground that was lost during the pandemic. So please explain how and where ground was lost with patient and workforce safety during COVID-19. Sure, Bill. So we have growing evidence that suggests that for many healthcare organizations across the continuum of care, that ground has been lost in patient and workforce safety during the pandemic. And I can reference some examples of that across three categories, patient safety, the workforce, and also the impacts on culture. From a patient safety perspective, we have seen increases in certain types of healthcare required in in conditions during the pandemic, such as central line infections, catheter-associated infections, and ventilator-associated events. These are typical indicators that we monitor to determine whether or not safety is um, improving or stalling or worsening. Patient falls with injuries and pressure ulcers have also increased. And we also know, Bill, that many patients, maybe many of you listening today, have chosen or were forced to put off some of the typical and necessary care for new and chronic conditions. So this missed and delayed care is something that our healthcare system is uh, trying to catch up with. We're reckoning with some of the complications from those delays and also some of the uh, growing mental health impacts that are also accompanying uh, the patients that we are seeing. One of the most important patient safety nets that we've had in healthcare that is often unappreciated is the meaningful engagement and support of patients and care partners. And around the globe, we saw restrictions on family and care partner presence, and those have been associated with resulting harms as well. From a workforce perspective, Bill, um, and when we think about the workforce, we're looking at safety and wellness because of those are critically and interdependently linked with patient safety. Uh, we have seen um, you know, substantial impacts that existed actually prior to the pandemic that many people don't realize. We actually have clear evidence that the healthcare industry is experiencing higher rates of workforce-related illnesses and injuries than many other industries 
including the ones that we typically consider to be dangerous, such as construction and manufacturing. But during the pandemic, in addition to the normal musculoskeletal injuries and falls and needle stick accidents, we've seen clear increases in the respiratory issues associated with COVID, um, the impacts of long COVID, and even more recently, um, lots of workforce coming down with the flu and RSV. And then across healthcare, the workforce is also experiencing higher rates of fatigue and burnout, moral distress, um, depression, anxiety, and suicide. And then there's the heightened production pressures and the administrative harms um, that occur, for example, from all of the pressures um, from insurers and payers and accrediting bodies for documentation, um, and also needing to innovate very rapidly across shortages in medications and supplies and technologies and staffing. And I'd also be remiss in uh, not mentioning the worsened workplace violence, which is a, both a physical and non-physical nature, uh, with non-physical violence that many don't really recognize as violence, but including incivility and disrespect and microaggressions, which are occurring regularly across all healthcare settings. And then for both patients and the workforce, inequities have become much more apparent during the pandemic. Some of these things we didn't really call as much attention to, even though they were there. But during the pandemic, we saw new examples of inequities, for example, with patients who may not have access to technology such as a phone or even the internet, and who are unable to receive telecare, which I know you, you speak a lot about um, in many of these SimCasts uh, during the pandemic. And we saw in the workforce very disproportionate impacts of illness and death in healthcare workers, particularly in settings such as long-term care. And from a culture standpoint, some of the measures that have been impacted that we use um, to assess patient and workforce safety, culture, and climate, which can be leading indicators for safety, include things like reductions in staff perceptions that management prioritizes safety, um, certainly reductions in staff feeling that they have adequate resources and teamwork, um, certainly declines in staff feeling that they can safely report concerns without fear of punishment. And these are all examples of items that are so important um, for ensuring safety. Um, in many surveys, we also feel that staff simply feel like going to work is very frustrating for them because they can't provide the safe quality care that they typically were providing, and very commonly, they don't feel like they're working in environments that are safe for them uh, to provide care. So we summarized um, some of these setbacks in a declaration uh, that we issued back in May, Bill, um, that folks uh, might be interested in from the National Steering for Committee for Patient Safety, which we convened uh, at IHI in 2018. Um, this declaration calls upon healthcare leaders across the continuum to really recommit to advancing patient and workforce safety by deploying the National Action Plan, particularly in light of these setbacks that I've just described. But I, I do want to also mention, Bill, that it's not just about setbacks, because what we've also seen is that many systems actually um, appear to maintain and even improve in some of those areas during the pandemic. Uh, many of these organizations have been fully committed to um, safety and, and highly reliable care uh, from a strategic perspective. And they have worked very hard to center focus on strengthening the foundations 
uh, for safety, which is really a property of a system, even though we tend to emphasize it as something that individuals uh, need to be fully responsible for. And this kind of aligns with um, the National Steering Committee's uh, work. Um, I mentioned them just a moment ago um, to release the first national action plan for safety um, in the United States, something that we have been calling for for decades in this country. The focus there is on four foundational areas of culture, leadership, and governance, patient and family engagement, workforce safety and wellness, and then ensuring that we are very intentionally designing learning systems and using learning systems within and across our systems, as well as on a national and global basis. And the reason why I wanted to mention some of these is that they're really essential as we think about HIT, which in and of itself doesn't really get us to safety. It's really an enabler of safety, but these are conditions that are required for HIT to be safe and reliable as well. Well, that's fantastic. Um, my second question for you, you say health IT in and of itself is helpful but insufficient for ensuring patient workforce safety. So please describe how it's helpful and where it falls short or needs help itself. Sure. Um, so we know, as I mentioned earlier, that safety is really a property of the system in general. And healthcare is a very complex system. It has to constantly adapt across a range of interdependent areas. And this is something that's well described in the socio-technical model framework that we often hear about when we're talking about HIT, where there are interdependencies between like the technical aspects, um, which include hardware and software and content and user interfaces, and also the socio aspects, including the humans, the persons who are using the technology. Uh, the workflow, the communications, um, how organizations establish and uh, utilize policies and procedures and their culture, some of the external rules and the pressures and the regulations that apply uh, to HIT, and then the system measure and measurements and monitoring. And I'll, I'll speak about these as we um, throughout our time together today, Bill. But ideally, what we want to do is to take all of that into consideration. Those are aligned very nicely with the National Action Plan elements, um, in fact, that I just described. But we ultimately want technology to do three things, I think, when it comes to safety. First of all, we want it to be safe, meaning it has to work, it has to be reliable, it has to be available, it has to be secure. Uh, we need to be able to use the HIT safely. It has to be usable, used correctly, and used fully. And the third area is using HIT to improve safety. And this is an area that often goes under-recognized, but by this I mean we want to be able to monitor and optimize um, safety, ideally through the lens of HIT and the learning systems that we build in alignment with that. So where we see HIT as being particularly helpful, Bill, is um, you know, certainly around the broadened access to and the tracking of important medical history, such as longitudinal data, um, the reduction in handwriting-related errors for orders, um, including for medications, uh, resulting decreases in medical errors, by the way, have occurred because of that. We also see some of the helpful areas in terms of facilitating communication among providers and care teams and patients. And very importantly, enabling patients and care partners to be a part of the safety net 
but also to be more meaningfully engaged as they review their records um, and vital information and help us identify errors. Uh, we've seen HIT clinical decision support that can facilitate real-time recognition of changes, identifying critical lab results and imaging results and improving screening and compliance with evidence-based guidelines and incorporation of predictive tools um, and other tools that can trigger our attention to changes in patient status that might otherwise go unrecognized. And again, uh, telehealth is a good example of how we've used technology and information to be able to bring care to locations where people need to have care brought to them. So despite its challenges, in some respects, it's also been an umbilical cord for many um, uh, with, uh, from a safety perspective. And then some areas where it falls short can be when there are defects in any of those three domains that, domains that I just talked about. Um, that IT, HIT being safe, um, being able to use it safely, and being able to monitor and prove safety. So if the technology is not available or if it's dependent upon interoperability with other technologies that aren't working well, or if we're not monitoring the performance of technology that we have, these are some high-level risks. Um, I can give you some specific examples um, of uh, some of these uh, challenges, uh, such as with predictive algorithms that are used to alert us to emergent situations, um, such as deterioration or sepsis. So if we have bad vital sign information going on in to those algorithms, if there's a lot of artifact, for example, the algorithms may not trigger correctly. Um, and for a lot of other reasons, the algorithms might result in false positives or false negative triggers. And when we have the abundance of these alerts, um, whether they are accurate or not, but especially uh, because many of them may not be, they can lead to a lot of skepticism on the part of end users, um, as well as missed or inaccurate diagnoses and action overall. And then we've got this emerging world, which is very exciting, actually, machine learning and artificial intelligence and a lot of digital health tools that can be very, very useful for providing data and advancing the care of patients. However, there's a whole lot more discussion and opportunity, I think, that we need to have about how we regulate those tools, choose those tools, how they're used um, accurately and safely. And, and being able to, again, put some structure around um, some of these evolving innovations in safety. One of the areas that I mentioned to Bill um, was in the realm of monitoring and optimizing safety. And at IHI, that is what we're all about. I mean, our goal is to ensure that we are improving health and healthcare worldwide. worldwide. But in many cases, uh, we don't necessarily see that how we're using HIT can provide direct opportunities for improvements. So there's one project that I thought our listeners might be interested in hearing about, which really looked at the performance of operational electronic health records across the United States. Over a 10-year period of researches from the University of Utah and the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the LeapFrog Group studied uh, whether or not this health IT safety measure test which uses simulated medication orders, can help inform organizations about how well their EHRs are working. Now, these are simulated orders that we know have either injured or killed patients previously. So this is a good pressure testing approach 
uh, for organizations uh, with their um, computerized um, provider order entry processes around medications. And the researchers found over time that these systems meet a lot of the basic safety standards for uh, medications, but less than 70% of the time. Um, so that's identifying areas where we have opportunities to improve. And in that work, we saw variation even within the same hospital systems, um, with different vendors and with the same vendors. So there's, again, a lot of opportunity to really understand this better. Now, we just finished um, some work with these same researchers. IHI was uh, privileged to be a part of an extension of that grant to do the same work for ambulatory medication simulator activity. So ambulatory clinics can do the same. And this is where most of the medications are actually prescribed and administered. We talk a lot about the hospitals, but that's a really important space for us to get better at. And some early work shows that the performance of these um, electronic health records um, with respect to some of the simulated unsafe medication orders are scoring even lower um, than they had been in the hospital-based setting. So there's a lot of opportunity here, I think, to be able to balance our priorities and research and understand where we've got not only challenges, but more importantly, in the spirit of being able to address those challenges and make improvements. So I have another question for you today, Patricia. Um, what is the role of healthcare leaders in identifying and addressing technology risks, such as overrides and normalization of deviance? This is a super important question, Bill, because this is something that happens every day. But let me just lay the groundwork by saying that overrides are really variations, and they're a form of deviation from what we expect for protocols and practice. And what commonly happens with overrides and workarounds is that we sanction them. It may not actually be direct, or avert, but through silence or inaction, or not necessarily even knowing that they're occurring in our systems in the first place. And I kind of liken this to the rockabye baby phenomenon of healthcare, in that you know we we have the baby cradled and hanging from the tree, um, and all is well. Um, the gentle wind keeps this baby rocking, and it lulls the baby to sleep. And similarly. Uh, when we think about what can go wrong if that tree branch uh, weakens or if a strong wind comes along, the whole cradle and baby come falling on down. Um, so we, we often um, you know, reflect on this lullaby and think about it as we lull folks to sleep. But really the message there is that something has gone wrong and we finally hear that at the end of the um, lullaby. So with this um, you know, area of overrides overall, what we generally see is that uh, they can occur when things are not going well. There are signals in the system that something's broken and they're not working. Um, and we're propping up and, and really navigating around some of those um, challenges. These are latent defects um, that are often very silent until they are until something goes wrong, and they can occur with um, you know, just uh, generally speaking, policies that are not enforced or unclear or poorly designed or malfunctioning systems as a couple of quick examples. Um, so first leaders really need to, and this includes um, each of us, as well as HIT developers, decision makers and designers and users, have to have an understanding um, and a sense of urgency to look at these overrides as 
an opportunity for improvement. Uh, we're often looking at harm in healthcare after something goes wrong, but when we track overrides, we have a chance to say, here's a signal that can help us move upstream and identify and mitigate um, some of the challenges and fracture lines um, that we exist. So some of this is just really a reflection of shifting the way we're thinking about harm and really moving much more upstream uh, to be able to do this. We've uh, recently seen a lot of organizations who are working with us and shared stories about how they're looking at how often uh, staff are overriding automated dispensing cabinets and barcode medications, trying to understand not who did it and what's wrong with that person, but to think about the systems lens that I mentioned earlier. Um, and these are very important conversations to have, but they require that systems thinking um, and a commitment to really engaging uh, the end users in understanding the opportunities that we have for improvement. I just have one more question for you today, Patricia, and it's an important one. Um, you point to the cognitive burdens associated with technology and documentation, uh, what works and what doesn't, and how can health IT leaders de-implement documentation burdens? Right. So I think on, on this final point, Bill, um, we're really good in healthcare at adding on more and more things um, and not necessarily thinking about what that does, but the mental effort that is required by our workforce as a result of a lot of this layering on is really enormous. And they're sending us critical alarms that they have reached the maximum of their human and cognitive capacity. So it's important, I think, for folks to think about how we not only do new things or add new things, but constantly are thinking from a subtractive perspective for what it is that we can actually take away to lighten the mental effort. Quick example is the Joint Commission recently announced a few weeks ago that it's eliminating, I think about 14% of their accreditation standards across their programs. And the impetus for that was to streamline standards and decrease the administrative burdens for healthcare providers. But they're using important questions that I think are very relevant to this question, which is around whether or not a requirement still addresses um, an important quality and safety issue, uh, whether it's redundant and there's so much of what we do in healthcare that's redundant, and whether or not the time and the resources that are required are commensurate with any benefit that comes out. So I see this as, again, a super important opportunity to put a lens of subtractive thinking, this notion of exnovation and eliminating requirements and work that don't really add value or um, establish a clear sense of purpose. One of our partners in Denmark is doing this very, very well with documentation in the home care setting. And they have uh, we have a nice blog on our website that talks about how they have um, specifically engaged their teams to be able to identify ways to eliminate some of that burden. So if it's one suggestion that I would have for our listeners today, it's really to examine as part of their HIT safety program, how well it's incorporated into their patient and workforce safety plan, and to be able to look for these opportunities to identify what really matters um, and what will not only advance safety, but also ensure that our workforce is experiencing some joy and meaning in delivering their job and can focus in on expanding their time in direct patient care. 
Well, that was all great, Patricia. I, I really appreciate this. And to our listeners, that's our hymns cast for today. I'd like to thank very much my guest, Patricia A. McGaffigan, RN, Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Bill. Thanks to everyone who joins us. And to all of our HIMSCast listeners, stay tuned. Another podcast is on the way.